Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Jews on Film. It's our podcast where myself, Harry, a uh, former film major, former as of a couple months ago, but a current active Jew and movie lover, discuss films with uh, my co-host, Daniel. And Daniel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? Sure thing. Thanks, Harry. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm an editor, filmmaker, and a Jew who enjoys films and talking about them. We're joined today by our guest, Rebecca Finkel. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be your guest. I too am a Jew and um, I have, I'm a lapsed cinema student, studied film for many years, spent a lot of my time just watching movies, thinking about them, talking about them, and I'm excited to be here talking about it with you. You may not know this, Rebecca, but we were billing this as sort of a uh, head-to-head film critics, um, you know, versus round. So if oh, you uh, kind of play that up during the podcast. I, that'd be I would great. like to throw in the towel. I immediately feel outclassed. It feels like several <laughs> years. I'm not sure. I shouldn't. I, I spoke too soon. I should have gone third. because yeah. I would not have represented myself as a as a studier of film. Yeah, no, it's all good. I think that's this is like the scene in the wrestling match where Rebecca comes out like surprise guest. And, you know, um, I was not prepared. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So why don't you tell us a little bit, Rebecca, of your background? Let's start with like Jewish films, like growing up watching movies. What was your experience with like when you're when you thought of Jewish films growing up? What was that to you? I grew up in a house where um, we watched a lot of movies. I mean, you know, a lot of them were on the old VHS on our VCR um, and rewatched um, my, my parents taped a lot of musicals off of television. That was sort of my first major genre familiarity, but you know, I think, Jewish films probably would be kind of like Fiddler on the Roof. And I remember going to see Crossing Delancey Mm. and that felt pretty Jewish, very Lower East Side culture. Um, Another Amy Irving pick. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah, We'll see this. We'll see tonight. And, um, you know, definitely like, you know, Jewish was my identity, but I don't think it was a large part of like what I was really watching. Oh, yeah. Actually, I would say the exception would be like an American tale. I do remember going to see that and feeling like, oh, I know those mice. Like those, <laughs> right. those, those are my ancestors. Right. Okay. okay. Fleeing Russia kind of thing. You know, there were there were cer- certainly recognition. There was Mel Brooks, obviously. Um, lots of lots of Jewish comedy. And it definitely in my upbringing, but, um, but yeah, there was the Jewish piece. I was, I was Jewish and I watched a lot of movies. So, um, you know, those two things were occasionally overlapped, but I wouldn't say it was like thematically, I was kind of interested in, in Jewish film in particular. Um, I did take a class in college that was, um, American Jew- Jewish film experience or something to that effect, um, where every film was looking at, you know, Jewish representation, Jewish filmmaking, and um, the American Jewish experience in particular um, on film. So um, that was like the one real focus um, that I remember having. Um, and uh, and then I spent a couple of years working at the Museum of Jewish Heritage uh, in Lower Manhattan, and I was in the education department. So I was mostly working on um, Holocaust education, but we also were the department that did the public programs. So that was, um, you know, uh, when we we had I forget which anniversary of Shoah it was. Um, where we had Claude Lanzman come and um, one of my film professors also at the time from the Graduate Center came to interview him. And, you know, there's just, it, it's always been threaded through my life, I'd say yeah. in various ways. It sounds like it. And so you hail from the East Coast, is this correct? Oh yeah. Got um, it. Okay. Yeah. I am from, born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens. Okay. You've qualified yourself quite a bit to be on this podcast for sure. Feels like this might be the beginning of a long-standing relationship. I don't think we're gonna mind <laughs> exactly. everything we can in one episode. Right. Exactly. Like there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Better watch out. We might be out of a job pretty soon, you know. I feel like uh, you know. Like. We'll see what um, the audience wants. And so so today's film we're talking about is Yentl starring Barbara Streisand, uh, filmed in uh, created in 1980. Um, I wanted to ask before we dive in, Rebecca, again, for you being someone who had a pretty healthy relationship with Jewish film and you mentioned musicals. What was your relationship to Barbara Streisand growing up? Yeah. So, you know, because so I was born in 1980. So it's really interesting to take a look at this film now um, and, and looking at it through a uh, 
a, a completely different lens, right? Like a 21st century lens. Mm, yes. You know, Barbara was an icon, Barbara, you know, she's from Brooklyn, like the high school right. she went to, my grandmother went to, you know, wow. very much. She is sort of part of the, especially the New York and Brooklyn Jewish consciousness, um, mm -hmm. like to um, proclaim her mm -hmm. as our own. She was already at the top of her game, you know, when I was growing up. So, um, but, you know, my, my household, we weren't like, you know, um, all that into her first, you know, she wasn't, um, she was, she was just kind of, uh, an icon more than yeah. anything else. So, um, I mean, I remember I was already older when Prince of Tides came out. I do remember that being, um, a really big deal, but overall I would say she was just, she was in the, in the air, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. she was in the, in the, in sort of the ether and, right. um, and, and she was, she was ubiquitous at the time. She was just, she was everywhere. And then in seeing this film, it was like, Oh, right. <laughs> she was yeah. everywhere and she was doing yeah. everything. Yeah, totally. Hundred percent, Harry. As a as a fellow uh, East Coaster, um, to Rebecca, I'm a the lone Sephardic West Coaster on the call here, so I feel like it puts me at a bit of a disadvantage here in my relationship to Barbara. But uh, Harry, what about yourself? Was she part of your world growing up? Yeah, not much familiarity. You know, oh, okay. I had vaguely heard of this film before I had seen it, but I never sure. had a, like this understanding of just sort of what it was and you know the history of it. I. You know, in some of the research that I did ahead of this, I learned it was, you know, she was the first, you know, woman ever nominated for, or I think to win a Golden Globe for director for this film. And it was this sort of monumental, you know, historical film that I didn't expect it to be as both meaningful as it was or important, I guess, in film history, but also as like so pronouncedly like Jewish in a way that it was. And just how, you know, and hearing you describe her as someone who was just, you know, sort of everywhere and, you know, definitely a big play, a major player in the industry to see you know, a film that was so explicitly Jewish. And obviously we'll get into that as we, you know, go through the film a little bit, but it was just like, you know, I, I think I was thinking about this a little bit when you were talking about your background and some of the films that you watched growing up. And, you know, in our first conversation about this stuff, I think I, you know, very clearly identified that there was, you know, like explicitly Jewish films that I thought were undeniably Jewish that were shown to me in, you know, a middle school classroom, let's just say, or, you know, maybe on a Holocaust Remembrance Day when I would watch, you know, like a Schindler's List or something. But then there was mainstream movies and you, you really see that sort of explicit like overlap. You know, we, we've pulled some films, we discussed Uncut Gems in another episode, and we talked about how that had some Jewish themes in it or ideas right. in it, but it was, you know, mostly a mainstream film. And I think, you know, understanding and learning more about who Barbara Streisand was and then just putting that in the context of this film to me was, was wholly unexpected. And I really, I did not expect, you know, what, what I was going to get when I actually watched the film. Yeah. Like I was saying before, like my experience going into this film, I had not seen this film. I had heard of Barbara Streisand growing up only as this sort of like, Jewish icon and, and singer. And I was not familiar with her oeuvre, as they say. And I, so I haven't seen her, you know, her movies before. And then, like you said, Harry, looking into this movie, it's like so groundbreaking in so many ways. Um, but before we get too deep into it, Harry, why don't you give us your trademarked IMDb summary of what Yentl by Barbara Streisand is all about? Sure. I, uh, I scrolled through a couple and uh, I think I found a good one this time. All right. Eastern Europe, 1904. A Jewish woman, Yentl, has a thirst for knowledge, but is prohibited from learning due to the restrictions of her religion. When her father dies, she sets off to increase her knowledge, posing as a man in order to gain admission to a Jewish religious school. Great summary. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. The, the movie is based on a uh, short story by Isaac Bashevis Singer uh, called Yentl, the Yeshiva Boy. It stars uh, Barbara Streisand as Yentl slash Anshul. Mandy Patinkin is uh, Avigdor. And then Amy Irving stars as Hadass. Um, she was, fun fact about Amy Irving, uh, she was also in Crossing Delancey, but she was married to Steven Spielberg for a few years in the 80s. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, really, really interesting movie. I don't even know where to start. I will say the creation of this film took quite a while to happen. Like in the in the book, um, Yentl is supposed to be a 16 year old kid or 18 year old kid, something like that. And at the time of the of the filming, when it was finally made, Streisand was something around 40 years old. Uh, nobody wanted to make the film originally. It really took a long time to get things going. You know, in terms of financing, a lot of stuff fell through. Uh, she eventually uh, made the movie in 1980. She co-wrote the film with Jack Rosenthal, and it was produced by Streisand and two other people. Um, you know, overall, it was like a uphill battle to get the film made. And at that point, it was kind of hard for, for one reason or another. People just it didn't 
at that time it was just hard to make the film. Yeah. And I want to interject and say also, you know, because it, this goes back to Harry's point about her being the first female director mm -hmm. um, to, uh, I believe she did, she, she won the Golden Globe and then was snubbed at the, at Oscars, the Oscars, was not yeah. even nominated. And that was what? repeated, you know, that was repeated with the Prince of Tides as well. And so, you know, there's sort of like, when I viewed the film, I was like, there's sort of like a meta story here also of Yentl is Barbara. Like she right. is in a man's industry. Ooh, good read. She's got to play by different rules mm -hmm. in order to, you know, play the roles that she wants to, which have been held by men throughout the years. And she really has to fight to get this film made. You know, I have a lot more to say about gender, both, you know, in the film as well. But, you know, it's it's just so interesting to think about also that, you know, here's this. She had already won so many awards. I think she'd already won a Tony. She'd already won an Oscar for acting. She she was already a huge star. And still mm -hmm. to get. Um, you know, financial backing for her film had to go to like every studio and had many doors slammed in her face. Right. So, you know, it, it was, it, it's just an interesting way that she then chooses to, um, to, to celebrate, you know, herself, her freedom, her right. voice. And this is probably, I'm, I'm looking back at her IMDb. So like her first role was funny girl. And then, I believe this is her second or maybe she, she was in maybe a couple other films, but this is sort of her hello Dolly after that. And then she yeah, was in the way few, we were. She was definitely in the way we were with Robert Redford. Yeah, that was a big one. She was in Star is Born. So she's done at that point. She's a pretty bona fide star. Yeah. And, and still, like you're saying, it was very difficult to get the film made because she she was just like married to the project and wanted to make it happen. And I think this is even before. I feel like nowadays you have passion projects from like established actors who like produce it and they executive produce it and they write it and they did it. And then they also star in it, but it's like there, this was, I don't know how common it was at the time in the eighties for something like that to happen, but it's just very interesting. Certainly not for a woman to, yeah. to do all those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you want to get into the plot? Should we get into it? Okay. Let's do it. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. You know, the, the film starts out, uh, as Harry said, in Eastern Europe in 1907, very sort of generic town. And, and we kind of come into it. You know, we're seeing the hubbub of the town. Next in the market, parsley, turnip, everything but soup. Storybooks for women, sacred books for men, lovely picture books for women. All right, we got it. Yeah, like right, like we're getting right into it. One thing I got to say before it gets too far into it is like the lack of Hebrew or Yiddish in the film kind of bothered me a lot mm -hmm. for something that's like so Jewish, like no Tom, like you don't, I mean, I just felt like they could have done a better job at, at like putting in a little bit enough that you could tell that it's Eastern Europe. Like there's not really that many accents going on. Like the Brooklyn accent, actually, for me, oh, I mean, okay. her her accent is so strong. Right. Um, and so for me to watch this and be like, are we in Eastern Europe or are we in Flatbush? Right. Exactly. You know, like there was that, like, right. that aspect of it where I, I agree. I was like, there's no attempt. Now you'd have people putting on fake like yeah. Polish accents. Right. There's no attempt to camouflage the the language or voice and and make it you make you feel like you're actually in eastern europe and yeah. i think it's such an interesting observation also because it's funny because they definitely don't make that effort when it comes to actually the language and the sounds but like in the details they they really showed up in a way that i did not expect you know that i haven't seen in another movie like this like where it feels like they're pandering to you know a more english-speaking audience and not actually playing up some of the accents like the details in the scenes I thought were so interesting. I mean, even, you know, seeing them selling like herring and carp there and, you know, just right. understanding the history sure. of, you know, I guess Ashkenaz Jewry and like eating that and just, you know, like just some of the books and some of the reference and she's, you know, we're going to go, as we go through the film, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but she's reciting these like, you know, verses that I just recognized a bunch of them. Mm. And it's like, you get the impression that, you know, Barbara Streisand and whoever else on the team was in charge of this, they, they did come from a Jewish background and they do understand what they're doing. 
and when they're not using the accent, when they're not using the language, that's a choice, not because they don't understand it or not because they don't know it well, it's because they want the audience to, you know, sort of meet them halfway. But if you're looking for the details and if you're, you kind of pick up on it, I was actually surprisingly impressed by, you know, how many little things they got in there that I was like, oh, that's, yeah, no, I get it. Nice. Yeah. I just feel like some of it, like, even now when you watch movies that are like, quote unquote, like mainstream movies, they'll still have some sort of like mumbling of, of a kiddish service or like a bracha on the chala and they'll say it in Hebrew because they'll be like, oh, yeah, these are real Jews. They speak Hebrew. And so like to have her like light Shabbat candles after like at the beginning of the scene when she puts her dad to bed and then she like sneaks in some Talmud reading. But she's also like lighting candles. She says a bracha, but it's like in English. And then it becomes like the Barbara Streisand music video part one. Like, so that's another device that I want to talk about and get your thoughts on. There's a lot of singing in this movie. You know, we want to play to Barbara's strengths. And so the songs are very much like what's going on in her subconscious and her thought process. It's not a morning I begin without a thousand questions running through my mind. That I don't try to find the reason and the logic in the world that God designed. And sometimes she sings to herself and you don't see her singing. And she's just kind of like wandering around and you hear it in the soundtrack. And sometimes she's like deliberately singing it. And some people are saying, what did you say over there? Like, you know, in the Taylor scene. Or, and so I wanted to get your thoughts on it. I found like it was a little as a narrative device, like a little, I guess, again, on the nose. I thought, um, I mean, you're, you have no doubts what she's thinking because she's literally telling you exactly what she's thinking. Um, but as a singer, I think it's, you know, you got to use the gift that God gave you and sing in the movie. So your thoughts on, on the singing. I was intrigued because I always had it in my head that this was a musical, but it actually is, you know, it as you mentioned, it's not the typical musical where it's really a device used just to depict her interiority, like so blatantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's yeah. essentially, it's like operatic in that she's sort of just singing her thoughts. Right. Obviously this is Barbara and that's what people come for. Sure. Um, you know, she's, she's got this gift, you know, personally, I, I she has an incredible voice. And sure. if you have the opportunity, if you have show notes, definitely <laughs> like, can, like she has a version of Avinu Malkenu mm-hmm. that is incredible. We like listen to it every year before Rosh Hashanah like she's got a great voice but I don't love the music in Yentl particularly I kind of found it you know um, and I do love Michelle Legrand I was like who was the composer it's Michelle Legrand who is an incredible French composer he did Umbrellas of Cherbourg and lots of French New Wave cinema and and he I believe won an award for Yentl for the score so you know this could be me imposing like just my own, you know, current preferences on like maybe what was really awesome at the time. I don't love the music, but it does give us a chance to really hear her thoughts. And, and, you know, for someone again, who has, has to fight to get this film made and then mm-hmm. is like, I'm going to sing, I'm going to be the only one to sing in it. <laughs> right, I'm going right, to sing right. every Gosh. single song is like a real power move too. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to jump in. I think that's interesting. I mean, I definitely think that I, I kind of agree with you. The music itself, you know, wasn't the most memorable. I remember reading about it. I think the, the composers were questioned about it afterwards and people accused them of all the songs sounding the same, which <laughs> they kind of do. Yeah. And I think their justification was that sure. they thought of it like a piece of Talmud where every piece sort of grows on itself. So they should sound the same. And it felt more like an excuse than an actual, you know, right, right, right. intentional reason. But what I thought was so interesting about the music is like, you know, you were saying that she really is the only one who sings, you know, it's kind of, it's not what you think of a musical and you're waiting. There's all these other characters that I was just, you know, waiting for their numbers. Like, you know, where's the Avigdor number? Oh yeah. yeah, That's his love. And I, and I think I actually even read that Manny Patinkin who plays Avigdor was like a trained, if not like like Tony winning singer, at least, you know, a theater kind of person. So it is such a strange choice, but what I want to say, Daniel, what I thought was interesting is that you reminded me that the first song comes when she's doing the blessing, you know, sort of over the candles when she's right. lighting, you know, Friday night. And I think that kind of put into perspective for me that the music is definitely, I think, in a way, her internal prayers. And it's right. like her communicating, you know, to God, both in the lyrics and, and mm-hmm. often in a lot of cases. And even, you know, that's kind of how we think of sometimes in Jewish tradition, you know, like prayer davening is supposed to be something that 
you say sort of quietly to yourself in a way that no one else can hear. And that, right. you know, runs through your thoughts. And I was actually just looking it up because I remembered that Papa, can you hear me? You know, probably the most famous song from the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. If you look at some of the lyrics, when it begins, it definitely reads like a Jewish prayer, you know, she says, God, our heavenly father, Oh God. And my father who's also in heaven may the light of this flickering candle illuminate the night, the way like the, I remember even listening to it the first time. And I was like, I wonder if she's, you know, pulling from some Jewish prayer that I would recognize. And that's why it sounds so similar if she's just, you know, figured out the style. But once I heard that song and, you know, after you pointed out that first song, that that's kind of how I think about this music, that it wasn't this ensemble musical of everyone singing at each other. It was just a way to sort of externalize her, you know, internal prayers throughout right. the movie. I mean, she came up as a singer, like, you know, her career started like playing in nightclubs and things like that as a singer. Um, She's also very funny in the movie, which we'll get to when we we talk a little bit more about some of the later scenes. But I feel like one of the main things is that she's a singer and and for her to not only do all the other things she did in the movie, but have the opportunity to sing, I think presents itself. I do feel like you said it's a missed opportunity to have like other trained singers kind of like, especially when there's like these scenes with Avigdor and Anshul or Yentl kind of like interacting. I feel like it'd be a good like, pair kind of song because so much of the film is about her hiding her identity um that the the music and the singing is the the one place where she can really express and i think we also see her growth from you know learning and you know this focus on the intellectual right to having her an emotional experience and having feelings and you know it seems like you know, when at the beginning, she's got no interest. They make it at the market. They make some comment about her maybe being engaged or is there a suitor? And she's got like no interest in that. And then over the film, it's sort of in a way also like a coming of age oh, yeah. tale. I mean, she may be 40 years old, but um, <laughs> it's definitely um, it's definitely got that that sort of um, undertone as well. And there's definitely, if I remember, there is a song where I think she even sings that sort of explicitly. Like I had never thought about, you know, men in this way before. And all of a sudden, you know, a big door is inspiring these feelings. And it definitely was an unexpected turn, you know, in a story where you thought the end goal was just how can she get to more learning? It's no, there's a little bit of an emotional journey going on. here. I definitely picked up on that a little bit. Is this the scene where they're going like mikvah diving? Where they're all like butt naked. So yeah, okay. So so just to catch everyone up on on what what happens. So basically, Yentl is secretly studying Talmud while her dad, who's not so approving of of that, uh, is like, oh, whatever. You'll you know you'll find someone. Da da da. So after her father dies, she packs up. She has this um, sort of like song in the mirror kind of situation. I forget the name of the song at the time, but she kind of like says, "All right, this is my chance. I'm going to do it." She hitches a ride and she goes to uh, she goes to a, na- a neighboring town dressed as Yentl. Um, and it, I guess she she finds a yeshiva where she studies and, you know, f- meets Avigdor among um, a- other people there. And she kind of just slots right in. She gets picked on a little bit and Avigdor kind of like saves her. It's sort of that like that kind of like movie moment, you know, in high school where you like bump into someone and you both drop your books. You're like, Oh, Hey, what's up? And then they kind of lock eyes. And so that there was the equivalent of that for me, where it was like, you know, he's standing up for her. Talmud recognizes life is filled with contradiction. You see, he agrees with me. You move. If you move your castle to Queen Seven, tonight is been, that's all. You don't know what you're talking about. Sorry. Check me. The long diagonal. You know, so later on, you know, there's the scene that you guys were talking about to make a very long story even longer is, uh, you know, they're, I think they're, they're just out and swimming and everyone's just, they just get completely naked and jump in the river. And throughout, this is like a sort of running gag, like sort of the, I don't want to, maybe like the asexual Yentl or uh, Anshul rather, like almost like Barbara escaping exposing herself as a um as a woman running away from confrontation whether it be from other men or from from her bride it's kind of an interesting sort of uh thread that runs through it yeah 
I found also that there, you know, one of the things that was interesting is, you know, in the, like, it sort of highlighted how in the yeshiva world, right, it's a world of men, Mm -hmm. but there's, there's like, you know, and I'm just going to bring out all my, my theory work and stuff here. But I mean, this was, this is honestly the most queer Jewish film I can remember seeing in a long time. And I mean, it's uh, just given how early it was, you know, for the eighties, but, um, you know, there is like there, let's be honest, there's like the, there's a lot of space for sort of homoeroticism in that like Chavruta relationship in the all men, like, you know, there's just, there's a lot of physicality, there's a lot of nudity and, and some of it is completely, you know, devoid of any sexuality and free, but you know, this is what she has not anticipated goes mm. along with the learning, right? right. Like she's there, yep. she's like, she just keeps trying to bring it back to Talmud study. You're wrong, Avigdor. It's a mistranslation. The Hebrew word for rib never meant rib. It meant side. Rib, side. What's the difference? All the difference in the world. Since Adam was created both male and female. Where's that written? Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. And if God took one side of Adam and not his rib and created woman, that means they're the same. We all are. Everybody's, don't you see? What I see is you've never been with a woman. What I mean is that they share masculine and feminine qualities since they come from the same source. But there's so much more to that world that she's completely like hasn't grasped that there's so much more than just the learning part. You kind of recognize it later on when we first see uh, Avigdor and Hadass together and he doesn't he doesn't even look at her. He doesn't consider her to be, you know, on the same intellectual level as him or anything, you know, and when you conduct yourself in a way that doesn't even consider, you know, any other women as being you know, on a level of conversation, you necessarily almost like it feels like it, it, it creates this sort of environment where you're considering all the other men around you in this very sort of homoerotic way. And I think that, you know, especially towards the end, you know, jumping ahead to just sort of the final moments where he confesses his feelings for, you know, yet I mean, th- those can feelings, those feelings were, you know, cultivated when she was, you know, effectively dressed as a man the entire movie. Right. And it's just yes. for him to suddenly be so drawn to her is obviously is necessarily born out of this homoerotic place. So it certainly was a thread that, you know, carries their relationship throughout. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because I feel like, like you said, towards the end, we have a very strange love triangle going on and almost like a there's like several people in love with a lot of people. And I almost got like a polyamorous vibe at some point where they're all three of them are sitting down for, for a meal together. And then Anshul leaves the room and he's like Hadass and Avigdor be together. And then no, no, let's all be together. Let's all have tea in the lounge. And I was like, what's going to happen next? Like what's going on? Like who's who Hadass loves Anshul. Yentl loves Avigdor. Avigdor also loves Hadass. And it's, Yeah, but I think it was just very interesting that, you know, seeing the way that Avigdor treats Hadass and then the way that Anshul interacts with Hadass and the way that it's just like sort of Anshul is this sort of archetypal like Talmud person who's like so yeshivish and so dedicated that he's not even going to talk about anything social, always going to be in the books, not going to go swimming and not going to have anyone's advances. And then Hadass is the sort of this woman who will dote on her husband and pour them tea and think whatever he thinks. And I'm cold, you're cold, you're fine. Da, da, da. You know, the whole relationship is just kind of confusing at parts. You know, it, it shifts quite a bit. But the, yeah, that the way that they're so diametrically opposed from each other is it's kind of a, yeah, interesting setup. That it, it, that surprised me the most about it. I mean, I think because Yentl, it has cultural meaning, right? So like, you know, none of us had seen it prior, but if you said Yentl, we'd be like, oh yeah, that's the movie yeah. where Barbara Streisand is a yeshiva bachar. Like, right. It's the Jewish Mulan. Right, exactly. <laughs> Jewish, <laughs> Jewish um, But, you know, once we got into the story, I was like, whoa, <laughs> I didn't ever heard about this love triangle. And I agree the the fluidity of gender and sexuality was really radical and was done in a really, really interesting way. Yeah, that does question for all of them who they love, how how they love, and kind of are, are they all in love with each other really was a real surprise for me. Speaking about their relationship, you know, it, it reminded me a little bit of the thread you were talking about before with, you know, sort of this is, you know, the, the sort of like the uh, the parable that the story is to Barbara Streisand's you know position in a male dominated you know field and one of the most interesting songs for me in the movie is when she's being sort of waited on by Hadass and she kind of has this 
dual feeling where she says, I'm, I'm both jealous of Hadass and how she gets to be, you know, revered almost by, you know, a big door. But at the same time, I'm learning to appreciate, you know, this life of being waited on and this life of being in this, you know, sort of quote unquote, like homoerotic, homoerotic environment with all the guys. And then, you know, you come back home and, you know, the women kind of take care of you and you don't even have to look at them. And there's this interesting dynamic that, you know, along the lines of the sort of filmmaking thing, it's, you know, it sort of puts into perspective what sort of compromises does someone like Barbara Streisand have to make, you know, both trying to stand out and pave a way for, you know, female directors and for women in the industry and also enjoy some of the benefits that come with, or just, I guess, part of that entails perpetuating some of the dynamics that unfortunately exist just because of that's where the industry was. And that can be both, you know, behind the camera and the industry itself. And then also, you know, what you have to put on screen, which, you know, I think this movie kind of does fall into this, you know, category of it doesn't really punish some of these, you know, I think pretty terrible actions of, of characters like a Vigdor and some of the men here, because it almost feels like she couldn't really pull that off with the movie. And she has to kind of let a Vigdor, you know, she doesn't have Yentl end up with him. You know, she kind of sends him, you know, gives Yentl her own kind of independence and liberation, but spoiler alert, we are talking about the end of the movie, but I guess like, Victor gets to go live unhappily with Hadass and you kind of get the impression that she has learned a little bit from Yentl about her own independence and about learning, but it doesn't feel like a Victor kind of was like, you know what, I'm going to invite her to Yeshiva with me and I'm going to empower her. Like it kind of does fall back on itself. So it kind of, I do think that I I think about, you know, Barbara Streisand and like what kind of compromises does she have to make with the story? How can she both tell this story, but also get the movie picked up? And obviously it wasn't easy for that to happen, but eventually it was. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I agree that, you know, there is this sort of suggestion or maybe a little more than a suggestion that she sort of brought Hadass along on this journey, right? That they, that she's teaching her how to learn, right? And, 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 and empowering her in that way. But the more radical, you know, um, ending would have been that a big door is like, well, I love you. And let's, we're going to learn together and be together. Um, but yep. instead he's like, Oh, great. It turned, I had feelings for you. I couldn't, I couldn't really reconcile that. But now that I see you're a woman, I feel okay. I feel okay. I feel validated. And now we can be together. You can grow your hair out and be the doting wife that I actually want at home. And we can just go back to like a heteronormative pairing. And which is of course not at all what Yenta wants, but that's not the way the movie goes, right? I agree. And, you know, because it's still a mainstream Hollywood movie, right? Like this is no small indie flick that's going to be playing at like the quad cinema. This is the big boys league, literally. And so um, I I agree that there are compromises that were likely made to, um, you know, and and I don't know what else may have been alluded to um, along her career as well, that where similarly it was like, still operating within the system. I think at some point when Anshul slash Yentl finally outs herself, you know, as a woman, Avigdor's initial response is first disbelief. And then he calls her like a demon and you're tempting me and this and that and the other. What are you, a demon? I'm not, you know. You spit on the Torah. I love the Torah. To spit on it, to spit on everything, on everyone, on nature itself. In God's face, in my face, in Adas's face. God, Adas. She knows nothing. She knows nothing. Nothing. No, she's innocent. Innocent. Married to a devil. You married a woman. How could you do such a thing? It was your idea. Why? This? My doing? Yes. Why? Come on. You're a man. Come on. Why? You're a man. Answer me like a man. I want to know why. Why? Why? Why did you tell me you were a woman? I was afraid. Of what? Of this. Of exactly this. So you lied to me. I had written down, like, you know, what is the film trying to say? Like, I think both of what you said was great. It's almost as if Yentl's like, I'm not going to find what I need. They even went to another town on this sort of like retreat at the end as sort of like a, a getaway. I think they went to Lublin or something like that. And and that's where all the buchers go to like hang out and study, I guess. So they brought their books and and that's where the sort of big scene that we're talking about takes place. And, and you know, I, I wonder if in Yentl's mind that, you know, she was maybe hoping for what you said, Rebecca, is like a sort of storybook ending where she comes out to Avigdor as a woman. He accepts her for sort of, you know, for what she is. And they live happily ever after. As you said, Avigdor would prefer that she kind of step into a more conventional female role and she's not having it. So the last scene of the film is her on a boat singing another song, but filled with like immigrants and, you know, 
it's sort of alluding to the fact that she has gone to the United States. And I almost want to see Yentl too in America where she lands and she's like hanging out with the, you know, the Lower East Side folks. But I do feel like I wonder, and I'm curious of your thoughts as well. Like if this film was made in 2022, do you think that she would end up with Avigdor? I think what the movie does well with the ending is that it kind of recognizes that she was ahead of her time. Mm-hmm. And although I think she like, I get the impression that as, as much as they went for this sort of Hollywood ending and kind of absolve a big door for, you know, his homoerotic feelings and they kind of give everyone the, okay, let's just clean up the board and everyone can be happy and go their own direction. It is a conscious choice that she kind of has, she forces Yentl to get on a boat and leave, you know, the country entirely and go to another continent. And there's this impression you get that, as much as her father was willing to accept her learning and obviously encourage that he learns with her, you know, when she's very young and that's kind of how she picks up on it. And as much as she gets sort of, she doesn't get fully, I mean, you said uh, Victor calls her a demon, but he doesn't fully, you know, isolate her. They, he, he reads her letter later on and smiles. So I guess, right. you know, there is some sort of note of acceptance there, but as much as that exists, I do think that the movie's final note is this was, she was ahead of her time. It was ahead of her place. And the world was just not willing to accept her. And I, I don't get the impression that in Yentl 2, she's going to show up in America and be embraced as this, you know, female scholar, right. like really exciting. Like I, you know, you get the impression that she kind of was, you know, ahead of her time and she kind of was not going to be accepted anywhere. So that's right. why I think you're on the boat and she's standing alone on the boat. And it's one of these musical moments where she's walking through and, you know, obviously the whole movie, no one's recognized she's singing, but it, it felt pretty loud to me that everyone there is kind of like, huddled down with their families kind of looking down and she's just walking through unnoticed singing on the edge of this boat because right. she's, she's still invisible. And I, I assume she will still remain invisible at least for, you know, a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's 1907 and she's coming to the United States. I don't know that that's like the most hospitable place for a strong minded uh, woman who is really interested in bucking the conventions of the time and studying Talmud, like the Lower East Side was probably not so hospitable to that. I was curious to see, like, in as she's going through the boat in the end, I'm like, well, how is she dressed now, right? Like, is she male? Is she female? And it's sort of ambiguous, right? Right. So it's sort of curious, like, what, it, it can really be a very contemporary story identity-wise, because certainly ahead of her time in so many ways, um, and also in that sort of disregard of, of gender norms and conventions. It's like, right. you know, she can, she can easily be invisible in, in those spaces. Right. I was, I was surprised by how much really does hold up. But I, I do want to jump on that last point you made on the boat, because, you know, now that you mentioned it, I definitely was wondering why she appeared a little bit more feminine to me on the boat at the end. And I'm not sure if it was her hair growing in a little bit or if her face just seemed a little bit. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I don't I don't know. I would have to look closely to see if she was like made up differently. But I definitely get this sort of androgynous feel to it because she's obviously not wearing a dress and she's not you know, kind of like, she doesn't look like she's not, you know, wrapping her head and she doesn't look like the women of, you know, the the sort of old country that she came from in the beginning. There's definitely this, you know, bit of influx and it doesn't feel like the answer she's learned is I should just go back to being a woman or I should, you know, just fully commit to being a man. There is this sort of, you know, interplay that I definitely agree with you. One thing I wanted to point out, like throughout the film, um, as we're talking about, you know, the love triangles and, and, and this and that, I feel like it's it's a love story with not so much love. There's no kissing. No one kisses. No, there's implied whatever. But like, I love the the scene at right after Yentl. I mean, I got to say right off the bat that like this movie is also has really funny scenes. And so like the scene where Yentl is being fitted for a tux um, and they're yeah. asking her to take off her pants and to, you know, and she's get very shy and did you have to leave the room and come back? And it's just like very slapstick and very funny. And then the wedding night scene, Yentl hatches this plan to get Hadass very drunk so that they'll just kind of like, I feel that, you know, it's got a very sort of, cat and mouse kind of feel where like Hadass is like really into it. She wants to consummate the marriage. And then Yentl is just sort of, uh, I don't know, you know, I got like a sort of nebbishy, like Woody Allen vibe, sort of like sort of escaping the sex of the scene. And, you know, she gets uh, Hadass drunk to the point that she just like passes out. Um, but yeah, it's, it's largely devoid of like any sort of sexuality besides the obvious stuff that's going on. There's no like, actual consummation or kissing or any of sort of affection, I think just because of the nature of the film. 
I mean, we haven't even acknowledged it yet, but this whole third act where they, you know, she literally gets married to another woman. And there's this, I mean, I'm not sure what a big door's plan was. It was, you know, if my best friend gets married to the love of my life, then I guess I'll, I'll be in close proximity with, you know, her, like more, the whole thing was a little bit ridiculous. And I think, I mean, the movie might've been playing it a little bit more for earnestness than maybe I'm, you know, watching it with now, but I mean, that, that whole third act was just a little bit, was a little bit unexpected for me. You know, the fact that this movie went there, it was like, you're waiting for that big moment where she's going to have to reveal herself. And you're like, it's going to be, you know, before the wedding, it's going to be at the wedding. And then, nope, they just get married for a couple of months. It seems a couple of weeks, a couple of months, however long. And the idea was that Avigdor, his family was not trustworthy because his brother actually like committed suicide versus died of consumption. So therefore he is not a good suitor. So Hadas, why don't you just marry the new kid in town, which is Yentl. Um, and I, mean, and yeah. I, thought, I think that's very, I mean, that's still a thing in the shit sure. world, sure. right? Like the stigma sure. of mental health um, is still pervasive mm-hmm. in, in the Jewish community and the community at large. And so I think that, you know, was not surprising. Also, there's a clear class difference mm. from, you know, Hadassah's family is really wealthy. Yeah. Um, and this is going to be a step up for anyone who's just living in yeshiva, getting their, you know, portions of food, like clearly going there for a meal, even Anshul, right. like, schlepping along it this is like the royal treatment beautiful dishes beautiful home <laughs> i didn't open my mouth the first two months i went except to eat she always that nervous she's a girl in love what do you expect she doesn't say very much does she what does she have to say don't you ever wonder what she's thinking no. What could she be thinking? Anyway, I don't need her to think. What was surprising to me was they invoke Yibum, right? The Leverite mm-hmm. marriage as like some context for yep. why this should happen, which is sort of an obscure-ish sort of ancient Jewish practice of, um, you know, if a, a man dies that his brother uh, marries his wife and sort of it's, but this idea that there's some sort of transfer mm-hmm. of, of love of, of marriage from between brothers, right. Uh. They're like invoking that, like, Oh, that's, that's sort of the Talmudic premise for this, um, principle. They keep mentioning the Talmud of Yevamot. Like they're, uh, they're right. talk, they, they keep going back to Yevamot. So I'm like, oh my gosh. I, w- I wasn't necessarily going to go down this path, but I have a little bit of a stretch because I remember there was one scene in particular where, you know, they're sort of standing in the courtyard and the, you know, the head rabbi kind of asks, you know, he's like, where is this law found that, you know, possession, I, I wrote it down as possession is nine tenths of law. You know, where is that concept? And like the answer, they go through it and just, this was also one of those moments where I said, for someone paying attention, I mean, this really, like we're talking about Bava Metzia, Bava Kama, which is all right. about, you know, possession. But the first suggestion by, you know, the like the sort of clown student, the one that we know of as being stupid is Yuvamot. And what I think is so interesting about it, not only is that a little bit of a precursor to that being invoked, but, you know, the question was possession is nine tenths of Jewish law and a Vigdor's mentality of, you know, his wife and as sort of being a possession to him. So for him, the concept of this transfer, oh, I can't have her. So let me just figure out like almost like she's like a belonging in a will, like who can I, you know, endow her off to is like. It's very consistent with how he thinks. And Anshul obviously is, you know, horrified and shocked by this idea that I think eventually is forced to go along with it. But like it's it's such a clear insight, I think, into how Avigdor is thinking about Hadas. Do you wanna take another quick break and we'll rate the film? We'll be right back. So we're back. We've talked about the film and our thoughts, and now it's time that we've all been waiting for time to rate the film. So we'll start out by rating it on one to five Jewish stars in terms of how Jewish are the cast and crew. And then we'll go to how Jewish is the film content wise. And then also how, how Jewish is the film thematically. And then overall we'll give like a rating. So Rebecca, you're our guest. Would you like to go first? I mean, this is a very Jewish film. So yeah. am I starting by one category? I mean, the cast is Jewish, right? Amy Irving, um, Barbara, Mandy Patinkin, they are legit. Very, very Jewish production side. Yeah, I'm going to say five. This was uh, definitely very Jewish. Yeah, uh, Harry, how about you yourself? Yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, comparing it to just some of the other movies that we've already discussed and some of the ones that we will in the future. It's 
it's not going to get more Jewish than this. You know, Barbara Streisand is, brings a whole level of Jewishness to the film and the cast and crew, which, you know, as we've looked up is, is definitely Jewish. So I, I can't argue with a five out of five. I mean, it's not, I don't even know if this doesn't hit five, I'm not sure, you know, what we would need. Right. It would have to be like a cast of just like rabbis for it to be right. you know, five stars. So I'm going to go five out of five Jewish stars. Okay, good. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a deep bench of, of Jews in this film. I feel like behind the scenes. Uh, so I'll, I'll probably also go five stars. I'd be, Hard pressed to think of like who in the film, you know, is not actually Jewish, but plays a Jew on screen, which is a whole nother thing we could talk about. You know, the whole the whole idea of of uh, Jew faces, they're calling it nowadays. But I feel like everyone in the main roles were Jewish. I could check the IMDb, but I feel like I'm also going to go like maybe five stars as well. So, yeah, our next rating scale is uh, how Jewish is the film content wise. Harry, we'll go back to you. I mean, also, you know, very explicitly Jewish. This is right. about someone who's Jewish, like limited by her Jewishness and looking to, uh, I mean, a literal yeshiva and trying to embrace Jewishness. It, it pervades all of the content. The uh, only reason I'm not going to give this five stars, one is to be interesting, but, because uh, you know, fives across the board might not be as fun, but also, and this might be bordering on theme. So maybe I'm breaking the rules a little bit, but you know, the end goal ultimately is a little bit I, I think the plot in the third act a little bit becomes more about this relationship dynamic with mm-hmm. the, the Judaism definitely plays a role into it because, you know, the concept of the marriage and the way that it's handed off is, you know, culturally Jewish of the time. And we spoke about the laws of Yavamot and how that factors into play, but because it's just a little bit more about this relationship dynamic and about her secret coming out. And, you know, I'm again, I, I don't know what would be a more Jewish film, but, you know, just to keep it out there and say that maybe we haven't seen it yet, but there is a more Jewish content film. I'm going to go 4.5. It's not Oof. it's not a very low score, Oof. but it's just not perfect. So I'll say 4.5 Jewish stars for content. There's that heel turn we were looking for, Harry. <laughs> All right, uh, Rebecca, how about yourself? I like your point. I think not every aspect of the film is explicitly Jewish or Jewish focused in every way. It's hard when, you know, they're quoting. And I will say also, I had like some minor critiques of like calling Pirkei Avot uh, Mishnah, referring to it as Talmud, for example, like at the very beginning when they're studying clearly from a Talmud, but they're actually reciting the Mishnah. Part of me was like, "Mm, not quite, (laughs) but you know, but any movie that's going to like quote some of the greatest, you know, bring out some, some of the greatest quotes from, um, Pirkei Avot is, uh, is pretty, pretty high Jewish content in my book. And similarly, you know, all of the just showing what happens in a Beit Midrash, right? Like, when do you see that sort of activity? Um, I will say the other the other critique that I have is, well, there's two more. One was very minor and it's sort of toward the end of the film. I think it's during one of her songs um, and maybe it's on the boat. Even. There's a, a montage where they show there's only once where I think we see the inside of a safer of a, of a book mm-hmm. um, and it's upside down. Um, at least wow. in the way that it's shown, I, I watched it twice and I think it's, it's safer Malachim and it's the Targum and like, there's someone a finger pointing to it and it's upside down. Um, and I don't know if there was, that was the intention, if they're showing it to the reader, I don't, I don't know. It was part of like a, a montage scene. It wasn't, um, but that, that got me. And then the other was there's a level of, you know, the sort of fiddler on the roof, sort of very stereotypical. Um, the, there was sort of, there was both a nuance and also a lack of nuance in like Eastern Europe, right? Like it's generic <laughs> right, right. Eastern Europe. It could be, you could be in Lithuania, you could be in Poland, you could be in Russia, you could be, you know, it's just, it's meant to, it's almost um, a fairy tale esque I saw somewhere where they, uh, someone was comparing it to kind of the opening of um, Beauty and the Beast of like Belle going through the French town. And it's kind <laughs> of the same, except they're selling, as you mentioned, like carp and herring. Um, <laughs> but the booksellers coming through and there's this, you know, a woman with her, you know, who's more interested in the books. And I was like, oh, yeah, actually, that is kind of, you know, so there were aspects of it that, you know, were just like a little a little hyperbolic and and sort of less uh sort of less authentic, I would say, but you know, that that's sort of part of the package. Um, in my my book, I think it's still super high Jewish content. Um, you know, 
I'm going to still say it's probably a five star. Oh, in light of all that criticism, you're still going five stars, huh? <laughs> well, wow. I mean, part of, part of, you know, what makes it Jewish is also right. Like digging in. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. I need something to, uh, to push back on. Yeah, absolutely. I think it. I'm not going to be as generous with my ratings. I will be a little bit critical. I feel like the lack of Hebrew or Yiddish in the film is a huge missed opportunity besides I feel like there was an occasional like oy vey here and there. And I think that was like enough that people understood what that meant. It was a very Jewish film, as, as you both mentioned. There's a lot of references and scenes that you wouldn't ordinarily see in a movie. And I feel like I'll probably go like either four and a half and maybe to be more interesting than Harry. Maybe I'll even go four stars. Um, no, I, I, you're the heel. I'm going to leave that to you. Don't worry. Um, but I feel like, yeah, overall, it's, it's like a hugely Jewish film. And so, you know, for that reason, I'll probably go four and a half stars. Yeah. Uh, thematically, where do you feel like the film uh, lies? I'll, I'll jump in here because I, I have some thoughts about that. Yeah. You know, on, on one end, I do think that you could watch this film without the sort of Jewish lens of it. I mean, you can't escape the Jewishness, but I just mean, you know, extract some themes here about, you know, independence and, you know, feminism, of course, and liberation. And there, there is a thread there that is obviously not absent from Judaism, but isn't necessarily an exclusively Jewish theme in a way that you would see that. So on some ends, I do think that there is a movie here, you know, without sort of the things that are thematically Jewish. But what I think the movie did really well that I think spotlights like just a real like Jewish core to it is that it it kind of comes from this place, this sort of challenging, you know, she's a very, she's a character that challenges a lot of, you know, norms, obviously, and a lot of people. And they make a big thing of her always asking why. And, you know, when she interviews with the rabbi to get into the yeshiva, he says she asks a lot of questions. And, you know, her father at some point, she keeps saying why. And he's like, stop asking why. That's just the <laughs> rules. And that kind of spirit, like it really did feel like this very thematically Talmudic and like yeshiva, you know, like the yeshiva wasn't just the background for the movie. It, it really, you know, imbued it with the spirit of like, you know, questioning and challenging. And that sort of interplay I thought was like a really effective use of, of like Jewish themes and using that sort of, you know, cultural, religious, Jewish, you know, spirit, you know, that's kind of like, you know, stereotypically, you know, Talmudic, stereotypically Jewish and using that to propel the plot, I, I thought was really, really effective. But you know, like I said, I think there were some other themes. There was these, you know, the sort of independence themes that coexisted. So that's why it's not going to get a perfect five this time. And it's not even going to get a 4.5. I'm going to go four Jewish stars wow. five for this one. Wow. Wow. Rebecca, your thoughts? How did this film line up thematically? I totally agree with Harry. And also I want to say that, you know, I think that, um, you know, going at it from like the queer angle that we're looking at, um, that that's, I think, where it really holds up as thematically really powerful, especially for, for its time. And maybe like, you know, the Jewishness and the specificity of the Jewish identity also sort of plays into that as, you know, as um, you know, Barbara herself as a queer icon, right? As a long from her nightclub days and, you know, as a, a belter, right? She's like an Ethel Merman type, a Judy Garland, like they start out soft and then they belt it out and they're like, here I am and here is me. And I think because of her, her persona also, you know, as, um, her Jewish nose, like, let's go there, right? Like, really, I mean, as someone who w did went into Hollywood and did not change her appearance in the way that many Jewish women did in order to, um, you know, to, to fit in, in, mm -hmm. in uh, with mainstream beauty norms. In her film roles, she's never playing the beauty. She's not going to be the Hadass. She's not going to be um, you know, she's, she's always a bit of an outsider, even because of her looks. So um, I think, you know, where I see the really strong themes, even though it's all packaged in a very, very Jewish way, mm -hmm. I actually think that, as, as Harry said, like the liberatory aspects, the sort of coming out, I mean, there really is like a coming out of like, and an unabashed, um, you know, ownership of self, um, that that really stands out for me as like primary viewing it in 2022. So um, I'm going to say three. So much good stuff has been said. I feel like I don't know what to add, but I will say that, you know, we've talked about like sort of the queer angle and the sort of trans angle of, of this film, but I also want to look at it in the lens of like modern orthodoxy in terms of like the role of a, of a Jewish woman in the prayer space or in learning which at the time was like not a thing as much in the Orthodox world, but 
also, you know, being able to have, you know, women nowadays who are interested in learning in Talmud and it, it kind of relates a lot to what's going on now with modern orthodoxy. So I think it, it's like relevant both then and now for so many reasons. Harry, you sort of alluded to it about sort of having a biblical connection, but maybe I'll I'll, I'll take this one, uh, you know, this ha- it sort of harkens back to like a Jake, Yaakov and Esav where he's you know, in in that story, for those who don't know, uh, Jacob steals some disguises to look like his brother to get a blessing from his dad, Isaac. And so, uh, you know, in, in some ways, the idea of like disguising who you are in order to fit into a place where you don't belong is somewhat biblical. Also, the idea that someone is sort of, you know, different than the norm is a very biblical notion, just kind of like being sort of st- standing out from the crowd is is something else that's sort of reminded me of these biblical characters and also obviously the the whole setting that the film takes place in i feel like you know i'm i'm not sure exactly where it lands uh i would say like maybe like a 4 or something like that for myself yeah overall what was your what were your impressions of this film like would you watch it again like on maybe like a general it could be an average of your previous scores but like overall any closing thoughts on on the film yentl as as a film itself i definitely I enjoyed watching it a lot. I actually, I'll admit, I watched this one on a plane and I tend to really enjoy movies I watch on a plane. I'm not sure what it is about, you know, being up in the air and lightheaded or whatever it is, but I was really, you know, charmed by the top half of this. The music was, you know, not so memorable in places, but Papa, Can You Hear Me is, you know, as good as they say. I, I enjoyed that one. And I think I really was, you know, drawn in, you know, we, we've been talking about it, but, you know, to see such a Jewish film on screen was really, and something so mainstream and so really as Jewish as this film was, was, uh, you know, quite exciting, I, I really think, for me to watch. So I really enjoyed it. I, I will say the the third act, you know, narrative turn gets a, loses me a little bit. We spend a little too much time with this, you know, love trying. I don't love things, movies when they get too uncomfortable and just sort of waiting for her to reveal her identity when I felt like she should have done it, you know, weeks before was a little you bit You got to build tension, man. You got to build tension. It's, it was too much for me. It was too much. <laughs> I, I kept watching because, you know, we had the podcast, but I'm right. not sure. But um, uh, I, I did enjoy it. But overall, you know, it was, I would say it's an overall 4.5 out of 5 Jewish stars total for me, which, you know, is a huge win just to see a movie that Jewish. To watch the whole thing again, I'll, I'll probably stick to watching some clips. I'm not sure if I'm going to sit through, you know, that sure. third act again. Yeah, we should say it's like a two hour and 20 minute film. Yes, so, very long. Yeah. Rebecca, any closing thoughts? Yeah, um, I enjoyed it. And it surprised me, as I said, in ways I really didn't expect. And as someone who, yeah, I grew up in the Orthodox community and studying Talmud was no small feat, even for women then. I mean, I, my... Um, many in my community did not. Um, I went to a high school where we did and my, I had a female Talmud teacher and to my knowledge, she was one of the first, um, Orthodox women teaching Talmud in the nineties. And, um, and it was really exciting. And so I totally like identified with Yentl's like enthusiasm around it. Um, I got it. And, um, and it, it was meaningful for me personally in that way as well as someone who has really loved Jewish learning. So yeah, I, I don't know that I'd watch it again. I'm happy it's out there and I can go back and maybe dig into some of the scenes again that were memorable or that, um, you know, but, uh, but I, but I enjoyed it and I appreciate the, the push to the opportunity and the push to watch it for the podcast. So on that, yeah, I'd give it four for sure yeah i would say that you know learning about the film the making of the film and then actually watching it uh, was very interesting i've heard like you like we had mentioned before i'd heard about it before in passing you know hearing about barbara streisand and hearing about yentl and then actually watching the film was an interesting experience and to view it through like a critical lens as opposed to just watching it as a just an average viewer in the in 80 or 83 or whenever it came out I feel like it might have been a different experience. I don't know that I would watch the movie again. I feel like I've, I've, you know, I'd rather watch some other films from Barbara's canon, you know, maybe like Funny Girl or something like that, that uh, maybe speaks to my um, love for comedy. But I would say, you know, there are some, there are some good sequences in the film. Like the cinematography is really nice. The editing is really well done. Um, It's a really good film. And like, it's a, it's a good one to watch if you haven't checked it out to those who are listening I, I would recommend it or like harry said watch some of the clips on youtube if you don't have two and a half hours i'll probably go like three and a half stars because like the idea of the film is great and and some of the scenes are great but the whole picture 
you know, it's a bit long and it's a little heavy handed at times, especially with the singing sometimes like it, it sometimes just like took me out of it. You know, it's almost like a voiceover. Some people love voiceovers in films and some people think it's like a hackneyed method to like get the point across. So I felt like this was kind of like a voiceover, but with singing and it, it works for what it is because she's a singer and we expect her to sing and people are buying tickets for the movie because they want to hear her sing. It seems a little weird that this, if it's not obvious, I was not a huge fan of the singing at parts. Other parts have fit very well, but um, I'll give it like a three and a half stars. Yeah. Rebecca, thank you so much for being our guest um, on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it was our pleasure. I hope you'll come back soon and check out another film. For all those at home listening, follow us on Instagram. Our handle is Jews on Film. Any uh, final words, Harry? No, this was a pleasure talking with you, Rebecca, and with you, Daniel. I uh, I enjoyed this, and I, I don't know a lot of people who have seen this movie, so I'm excited to recommend it to them. Fantastic. All right. Well, have a good one, and uh, see you later. Night. Thanks. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Daniel Zana and Harry Ottensaucer. Daniel Zana edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.